Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And this week, we're going to do another emergency episode. The last time we sat down to record one of these, Putin's former caterer turned warlord in chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, had launched a rebellion against Putin which at the time ended in an uncertain stalemate. And on Wednesday, Prigozhin's private jet fell out of the sky on the way from Moscow to St. Petersburg. Prigozhin has been declared dead by the Russian state media. Officially, the cause of the accident is still unclear. But as US President Joe Biden said in his reaction to the news, not much happens in Russia that Putin's not behind. So what does... His demise mean for the future of the Wagner Group, both in Ukraine as well as in Africa. How are Russians reacting to the news? What does it mean for Putin's hold on power? What do Europeans need to know about this? Uh, To help us make sense of all of these questions and maybe even some more, we have an all-star cast returning to the podcast. First up, we have uh, Kadri Leek, who's a senior policy fellow at uh, ECFR on our Wider Europe program. Um, also from the Wider Europe program, we have uh, Kirill Shamiev, who uh, works a lot on civil military relations. Pavel Slunkin, who uh, follows the Belarusian angle uh, very closely, um, which is an important angle for this story. And finally, we have Theo Murphy um, joining us from Berlin. He's the head of ECFR's Africa program. So thank you very much to all of you for joining. We've all still tried to make sense of what's going on. Uh, Verified reports have been a bit slow to to come by. Um, And for much of what we know, uh, there are various snippets emerging on different telegram channels. And the Russian state news um, is also putting its spin on on events. Um, But maybe um, uh, one of you can can start by telling us uh, what we do know so far about the events that happened, and then we can put it into this kind of broader context and start answering some of these other questions. Um, Who wants to go first? Well, I can start if no other volunteers. The facts, you know, already late last night, plane carrying the leadership of the Wagner Group, including Prigozhin, crashed in the Tver Oblast, and they are all announced dead. That happened pretty much exactly two months after Prigozhin started his mutiny, his march to Moscow. I belong among those who found it very strange that after the aborted mutiny, Prigozhin was able to walk around freely, even going to international events. He was present at Russia-Africa summit. I was puzzled about the nature of the deal between Putin and Prigozhin. I couldn't see how could Prigozhin force Putin to keep his side of the bargain, whatever that was. We, we never knew. And now it looks like he couldn't, like he was never safe. And and the Kremlin was simply taking these two months in order to deal with the situation in a calmer manner, to dispose of the Wagner fighters, to connect them with other units, send them elsewhere. And then they have, now they have dealt with precautions. So yes, I should say I was not surprised by what happened, though it was 
definitely grim. So as uh, as Kadri was saying, um, these last two months uh, haven't simply been uh, filled with a, a vacuum. Um, there have been various attempts to to try and calm things down in Russia to uh, break up some of the the the, the links which emerged and. Um, uh, and to reform uh, uh, different parts of the military, Kirill, you've been following these things very closely. What what were the main things that that you took from uh, from the events yesterday? Well, um, I, I agree that with Kadri that his uh, alleged assassina- assassination was something to be expected, uh, because again, because of the uh, the sheer size of the blow he uh, he made to, to the Putin's regime. Uh, I was surprised by the uh, by the way they implemented it. Uh, if we again we if we belong to the camp thinking that he was indeed on on that plane, uh, that was uh, well quite spectacular because it's uh, in the almost in the middle of the day in the second part of the day with a lot of uh, people basically literally witnessing the plane falling down from the skies, and uh, well it looks like it's a sign to another sign to all uh, all the elites inside Russia that. Uh, you should meddle with Putin. Uh, that if you go against him, be be ready to to basically to die. Because again, he's quite famous for his phrase that the only thing that he cannot forgive is betrayal. In terms of the civil-military relations domain, in one of my articles, I mentioned that solving the consequences of the crisis was a headache for the Kremlin, because uh, again, during the mutiny two months ago, Wagner forces shut down several Russian planes and helicopters. Uh, they were engaged by um, by, by, by by the uh, Russian Air Force, and uh, and the, and they also captured the uh, military headquarters in Rostov, and it was a significant attack on the Russian military, uh, not only in terms of the human loss but also the ideological loss, just as an, uh, in the ideological dimension, because no one before could do this and remain alive or at least not in prison. And uh, alleged of all, Prigozhin was, for two months he was uh, relatively free, as Kadri said, he was trailing all around Russia and also abroad, and that was puzzled, that, that, is, that is what puzzled me a lot. But as we see now, uh, apparently it was just a pause or a break to demobilize the Wagner troops, to integrate some of them, uh, also perhaps to delegitimize the, uh, the Prigozhin as a person and then to conduct the act as we witnessed today, uh, yesterday. And in parallel with that, um, almost uh, simultaneously with it, they also officially dismissed Surubikin from the, from the command of the, of the Air Force. Can you talk a bit more about that and how that's linked with it? Yeah, to be honest, that looked quite symbolic because the news about the official dismissal of General Surovikin from the command of the Russian uh, VKS of the uh, Aerospace Forces, it, it was released, uh, well, leaked sort of uh, uh, a few, 10 hours before the news about the plane falling down from the skies. And uh, the first uh, the first suspects uh, or the first reason for, for the catastrophe was that it was the plane was shut down by the air defense and the air defense in Russia is uh, belongs to the uh, uh, aerospace forces. So to me, it looked quite symbolic, but again, uh, it can be perhaps uh, a bit later on, it will be proven that there was a bomb on the plane. Uh, but um, in terms of history, it's I think it was a symbolic gesture. Another thing that uh, General Surovikin allegedly was, if not involved in the mutiny two months ago, but at least he knew about that. 
And uh, then he disappeared uh, uh, after his famous video on the night of the mutiny when he was asking, well, or maybe pleading Prigozhin to stop and uh, to back down. And since then, we haven't uh, seen him or heard of him. And that is another mystery that still needs to be, uh, well, solved one day. Okay. Um, And why do uh, all of you think that... um that Prigozhin thought that he might be safe. Uh, why would he think that flying might be a good idea, given what was going on? Why was he behaving? In, do you have any kind of ideas why he seemed to have a much higher idea, uh, estimation of his safety than pretty much anyone else in the world? I definitely do not. I am puzzled. If I were him, I would definitely... St- have stuck to crown transport in Russia, preferably in an armored column surrounded by troops, or even better, stayed out of Russia entirely. Pavel might have ideas, though, as to what Lukashenko might have promised to Brikozhin. So I'd like to go to Pavel. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're going to come to, to Theo a bit later on and talk about, about what this means for Africa. But before that, maybe we should just talk a bit about the future of the Wagner Group. There are 10,000 soldiers in Belarus. What are they going to do now? Who's Who are they going to answer to? Who's going to take over the Wagner Group? Um, what happens to, to Wagner it, it, now that not just Prigozhin, but but Utkin, the, the, the head of the Wagner Group's operations, um, have been uh, allegedly killed in this plane crash? If you allow me, I would jump in your previous conversation. Uh, I, my impression of uh, what happened yesterday was like surprise for me was that it happened only yesterday. Uh, yesterday, I recognized Putin. I was surprised when uh, Prigozhin was allowed to leave, was allowed to fly, was allowed to continue his business in Russia. And this was uh, kind of unusual. Uh, so yesterday, I really recognized the style of Putin. And there is a proverb that says that revenge is a, is a dish uh, best served cold. And I would say this is the, the, the way how, how Putin... Uh, and and what he did to uh, to Prigozhin, in terms of Belarus, uh, Prigozhin didn't spend much time in Belarus. He came, he had negotiations uh, in Belarus. Uh, the Wagner groups they did training for their soldiers of the Ministry of Defense uh, of Belarus. So there were around uh, seven eight thousand soldiers, and the tent camp that they had uh, in Asipovichi. Um, was uh, for uh, 12,000 soldiers, uh, including technical specialists. Uh, so the, the big part of uh, Wagner groups, they were on vacations. So this uh, camp was not functional. They, they didn't use that for military purposes, if, if we don't think that uh, training uh, uh, that they were doing for their uh, Belarusian conscripts uh, can be seen as that. So for the future, uh, they have already been starting uh, dismantling their tent camps. Uh, so the 30% of those camps, they, they already uh, dismantled. And still not clear what will happen uh, to, to the people who are in Belarus. I see here three potential scenarios. Uh, the first one is that uh, Wagner would continue, will continue, exist, but uh, it will be had it by a loyal figure appointed by Kremlin or uh, just been completely uh, uh, taken over by, by Kremlin uh, with the Ministry of Defense officials. 
Uh, the second one uh, that it uh, can be recruited by the Lukashenko regime. And they did it, so they had already practiced that after the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, when the uh, groups of uh, riot police officers uh, who were cracking down on, uh, on the people protests, and then they had to flee the country uh, because of their risk of criminal persecution, they joined the Ministry of uh, Interior uh, in Belarus and, and the riot police uh, in um uh, in Belarus. And the third scenario is that just this was the last, and we are observing the last days of Wagner, that it will just uh, end. What's your uh, best assumption of what's going to happen, Kirill, out of those different scenarios? In my view, some of the, uh, uh, well, uh, most pragmatic parts of, uh, of Wagner's mercenary corps would be co-opted in the Ministry of Defense structures because still these men, they uh, well, the only thing they can do is to provide uh, quote-unquote uh, armed uh, services to, to the Russian government and while being paid, they would continue doing so. But uh, the answer to this question will also be conditioned by uh, any information on the uh, Wagner's military leadership. Allegedly, Dmitry Utkin, the, head, the military head of the uh, of these mercenaries was also on the plane, but I wonder what happened or will happen to other remaining Wagner military uh, military officers or leaders, because uh, in in terms of operational and tactical control, the officers are the most important asset that, that Wagner had, and if uh, some of some of them will be co-opted or already have been already been co-opted by the Russian Ministry of Defense, then mercenaries and these soldiers will just follow them. Uh, so in my view, there are two options. Either they, the, these individuals uh, go and join the Russian Ministry of Defense Forces uh, in one form or another, or they'll have to resign and probably stay as low as possible. Again, unless they are senior military leaders of these uh, mercenaries, then perhaps there will be even closer attention from the Russian security services. And, and, and I wouldn't bet on their... Well, survivability in the uh, nearest uh, future. Um, and we should turn soon to, to what it means for, for Africa, given how important um, uh, the uh, Wagner Group was to, to Russian presence in Africa. But but Ukraine is obviously the other theater that's um, been going on. I think one of the reasons why some people speculate that Putin took his time uh, before acting was that he was worried about the Ukrainian counteroffensive and whether he'd be able to withstand it. Obviously, uh, Russia's uh, been able to withstand it quite successfully in the in the in the last um, uh, uh, two months. But um, how does uh, all of this turmoil in Wagner affect the the Ukrainian situation? In terms of the Ukrainian situation, I think it it, it did play a role, but here it, I would refrain from a monocausal explanation. Of course, uh, having some like thousands of Wagner troops in case if there was a sort of breach of the uh, defense lines would be helpful, but we saw that it didn't happen, and uh, some of the troops were sent to Africa, and the majority were uh, were, uh, were relocated to Belarus. Uh, another explanation could be uh, is that it was most mostly about the security of the regime. Uh, Putin needed time to move the troops as far as away from Moscow as possible, preferably from the Russian territory, and also to break down uh, the unity of command, the leadership inside Wagner, so that some of them already were co-opted before before the assassination of uh, Prigozhin. 
so that it would be just safer for him to uh, finally make steps and to solve this uh, problem forever. Because I remember some journals were saying, oh, what Putin looked weak by not engaging uh, Wagner mercenaries marching Moscow. But in my view, a strong leader is not the one who is uh, using a brutal force indiscriminately and just uh, sh- shoots at everybody, but who, who waits for a preferable moment and then does what yeah well what the, what the leader wanted and Putin uh, here uh, uh, yes has been said before showed himself as we expected him to do. Theo, do you want to take the focus away from from inside Russia and and look at uh, Africa for a bit? What does uh, well, firstly, you know what role has Wagner played in Africa and and what kind of uh, prospects does Russia have for playing a role? in all of these different African theatres um, in this sort of post-Prigozhin era? Yeah, thanks, Mark. I, I mean, I think Wagner was, for um, the Russian system, fantastic value. It was a sort of Swiss army knife of Russian foreign policy. Uh, if you needed arms transport, as they did in Libya and in Sudan, you had Wagner as a go-to. If you even needed high-level conflict diplomacy, as you had in the Central African Republic, uh, Wagner stepped in. And offensive military operations, also no problem, as we saw in Mali and Carr. So, you know, the value of of the Wagner network as a tool, uh, that maintains. I had the impression um, after Prigozhin's attempt on Moscow that he was taking a sort of back-to-roots or back-to-first-principles approach. And there was various bits of news confirming that. So basically demonstrating or reminding Moscow of what fantastic value Wagner offered um, in furthering Russian objectives in far-fung places, right, far from the home front. And that was corroborated to some degree by um, former Mr. Lavrov's statements, confirming that um, that Wagner's activities would continue we saw Prigozhin pop up in St. Petersburg at the Russia-Africa summit, um, which is very strange. And I think latterly, uh, just before this incident that ended his life, uh, apparently he was returning from Mali. Who knows? Maybe he had managed to bag um, some significant win there that he was trying to bring back to Moscow. What it means going forward um, is really all about a handover now, uh, to be sort of banal. Um Wagner was a pretty important partner to quite a few African states. And so you can imagine that those states are feeling um, a little bit unsteadied right now. I think they're going to want to know a few things. They're going to want to know if Putin still stands behind Wagner. So are, are the two, are the two Wagner and Russia still somehow synonymous or not? Um, number two, besides Prigozhin, his commander's, played really key operational roles in individual countries. Are they staying? Are they going to be happy with the new management, with a new accommodation, also with Putin in Moscow? Uh, and I think that brings us to point number three as well, that you, know, you need in this kind of leadership vacuum um, in order to demonstrate stability to nominate a new head pretty soon. And that new head um, should, again, of course, have the the support and confidence of Moscow, um, but also be able to relate well to the existing commanders. I think these commanders are are really important right now because they're the ones who manage the local contacts. They have the networks. So you have to keep them on board uh, if you want Wagner to continue to be this kind of cohesive and value-additive foreign policy actor. Great. Um, 
Kirill, how do you see um, uh, the all of these kind of different things developing now that uh, that Prigozhin is dead? Uh, I would agree that again, um, uh, for for the best case scenario for Putin would be to uh, integrate the remaining assets of Wagner into the official structures, or to have perhaps to break them down, and uh, they may be outside the uh, official chains of the uh, Minister of Defense, but as small uh, quasi-private military companies, for example, of uh, one hundred. Uh, personnel size or something like that, and they can. And but it's again, it's it's really very important as, asset here, aspect here, and that's already some of the Wagner affiliated Telegram channels mentioned it already. That uh, is um, individuals uh, because a lot of Wagner's effectiveness was related to um, well um, putting all these moral aspects aside. Quite capable and uh, knowledgeable individuals who could organize, for example, the logistics for the mercenaries in Africa who could uh, collaborate with the uh, uh, lo- local forces and local political leaders in Africa and in other places, who could also organize, as I said before, the uh, military side of their operations. And uh, these are um, these are like single digits. Uh, uh, people. The number of people who can do it are just is very low. And uh, um, if some of them remain, then yes, of course, the Wagner's capabilities uh, would uh, would continue, but I guess it's uh, well, it's not going to happen, and some people will have to go, or maybe uh, already gone, and uh, we will never hear of them again. So, um, thank you very much. I think we covered quite a lot of uh, grounds. Obviously, um, it's all just happened very recently. We're talking on Thursday evening. The events which we're discussing happened on on Wednesday evening. Um, but by and large, um, maybe we can just end with some kind of speculations about what, what this means for Russia and for Putin um, and his standing um, uh, both within the country and also internationally. But it, it, from what you're all saying, it strikes me that um, he's looking a lot stronger now than he was a couple of months ago. At that time, people were totally shocked Um at the the events of the twenty third of of June, we were all pretty shocked when we did our emergency podcast, um, and it was all fresh in the news. Um, but he he now both looks, uh, you know, like he's reestablished uh, his his deterrence in the eyes of the elites within uh, within Russia. The Ukraine situation looks uh, more stable than many people um, feared. I think in Russia it would do when the counteroffensive started. There was a lot of of uh, nervousness about what the Ukrainian counteroffensive might look like. And internationally, you know, he'd been taken to the International Criminal Court and and the South Africans were discouraging him from coming to the BRICS meeting. But now, um, you know, uh, he's participated virtually while all of this was going on rather surreally. But people are now looking forward to the next BRICS meeting taking place in in Russia itself. Uh, Would you all agree that, that, that he... Um, has emerged uh, in a rather stronger position than what many people felt uh, would be the case two months ago, or um, are there still some some twists and turns to this story to come? And um, uh, and do you think we're reading too much into the latest news cycle? To me, actually, Putin has repeated a pattern of behaviour we saw in late 2011. The situation was. Different situation was a lot more 
benign. There was no war, there was no mutiny, but Putin was facing big democratic protests. People were protesting against stolen elections the way no one had seen for at least a decade, if not more. And he was also not prepared for that. It surprised him. And his strategy back then was also to wait it out. He didn't do much, but once the presidential election was over, then he started his revenge on those who had protested and all the awful legislation on on foreign agents and everything started coming. And I think we saw the same this time. He was at a loss in the morning of, of June 24. He wasn't prepared. He didn't know what to do. But waiting it out helped him again. He was able to collect his thinking, come to a decision and deal with situation. So no, I don't think he's weaker, nor is he much stronger. Or I think he's in control, but in that ever more hollowed out way. I mean, the system expels everyone who thinks slightly differently from Putin. Ultimately, that'll be a weakness of the system. Temporarily, that might be a strength of Putin. So that is my take on it. Okay. Um, Thea, you wanted to come in as well. Yeah, I think this this weakens Russia and Africa. You have to recall that Wagner is associated with the Russian overall brand. And more important still, it, Wagner has been presented as an alternative to important functions that were led by international institutions. For example, UN peacekeeping in Mali. They, the Malayans kicked them out and they said Wagner can replace them. And I think what's been revealed right now is that Wagner is not an institution whatsoever. Um, you can't decapitate the UN, uh, but obviously you can decapitate Wagner uh, and have no clear idea of, of the trajectory of that organization or network going forward. So I think that uh, a lot of people who rely on Wagner services in Africa um, will be doing some pretty serious reflection here on the wisdom of that choice. Okay, I think we've come to the end of our time for the normal podcast, but there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Kadri, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, I am freshly back from vacation. Uh, Today is my first day at work, and I have been reading about the history of Estonian farmhouses, history of the Muhu Island, where I happen to have my family's farmhouse, and lots of construction books. I'm trying to do some renovation in my country house. And it's surprising, actually, how connected that is to foreign policy. In the course of that, I have already found a helmet that I'm trying to identify, probably World War II Russian helmet, though we don't exclude German either. Parts of not the house, but certain things are constructed of iron taken from Russian warship that sunk in, in World War One, not far from our shores. So it's actually amazing how many linkages you can find between my house and European foreign policy. 
Wow, a history of European countries' farm house. Uh, Kira, what's on your bookshelf for the moment? I'm currently preparing a policy report about the security sector reforms in Russia. And the uh, mainstream literature in the security sector reforms claim that political will and the political leadership is a necessary criterion in all cases of the security sector reforms, especially in transitional states. And I think this highlights very well uh, in the in the case of Wagner that individual uh, individuals, uh, individual political leaders matter a lot, uh, including in autocracies. But at the same time, the autocratic ruler ruler pays a lot of attention to prevent these leaders from appearing, but also to eliminating them when they're out of control. And uh, when it comes to the political will, uh, what's interesting in the Russian media, a lot of people think the political will is something like a strong leader, the one who can force others to obey. But in fact, in the mainstream literature, the political will is a communal endeavor. This is having allies, being able to uh, have people together to act in a single way. And this is, this is what uh, uh, keeps me thinking these days. Great. And what about you, Pavel? I don't have a book, but I am now learning the archives of, of the times of the revolution, October Revolution in Russia and then the Civil War. Uh, and I'm impressed with how many symbolism is there you can find. Like how Soviet, the young Soviet Republic then uh, tried to deal with those groups of people who were fighting but were not at the full control uh, over the central government. And still when you read it, uh, you can just uh, recognize the people of today. And so this is uh, amazing on how the time passes, but still not much changes. Right. Um, what about you, Thea? Well, uh, if your listeners have exhausted all of the outstanding World in 30 Minutes podcast episodes and they have a little bit of time left over, I can recommend um, the Red Line podcast and particularly an episode they recently did on de-dollarization, which is super interesting in the context of the BRICS summit right now in Africa because uh, one of the topics is whether or not it's possible to dethrone the dollar. And I think that podcast gives a great insight into why that's not going to happen tomorrow. Fantastic. Well, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do uh, let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours and head to whatever platform you've used to uh, download this episode and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, be great if you could give us a positive uh, review and a five-star rating. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu but for now from theo pavel kadri kirill and myself mark leonard it's goodbye the researcher for this podcast is anand sundar and the editor of this episode is mireya barrow sarats mm-hmm.